We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Wrigley Field, the publisher Stuart Tabori and Chang, the writer Ira Burkow. Please join me as we say welcome home to the Pulitzer Prize winning author Ira Burkow. Thank you. And uh, just a little inside baseball, so to speak, uh, to get us going. I don't normally uh, say it's safest, but uh, this is a, as you'll see, this is a, basically it's a beautiful coffee table book in, in a way, and it's, it's, they did a fantastic job with this. And when it came in, as a coffee table book, I assume, I'm just going to flip the pages and see pictures and that kind of thing. Uh, by the way, and you have to buy the book for this, there's a great picture of Ira as a sophomore in high school in his, on his uh, baseball team. So that's only available if you buy the book. <laughs> high school baseball. Yeah. Sullivan High School in the, uh, the north side, Chicago Public League. So what I usually do is I, uh, to prepare for these podcasts, I start, I'll read the first paragraph of the book, and I'll then go to the last paragraph of the book. I don't read anything else. No, no, that, that, it gives me an idea of, I want to see how the author gets from there to there. These are not murder mysteries, so it's okay to read the last paragraph. And I thought, all right, well, this is kind of a coffee table book, so it's probably not going to be that. So I opened it up, and there is the foreword by Kerry Wood, and then this beautiful essay by the Supreme Court Justice Stevens. But then there's an essay uh, by Ira, and I want to make sure I get this the, the chapter name correct. Uh, the boy, it's the introduction, the boy, the man, and the ballpark. And uh, he made me cry reading this in a coffee table book, which I was not expecting. And then I went to the last paragraph, and it's actually Sarah, the interview with Sarah Paretsky, so I thought that doesn't really count. So the next page were the acknowledgments. And it takes a Pulitzer Prize winner to write uh, an acknowledgment where in the first paragraph you also got me emotional again. <laughs> so thank you. Okay. What is that? I don't remember that, that paragraph. Uh, the acknowledgments? Yeah. We'll, we'll, okay. we'll end with that. Okay. And um, so really just to get going, which maybe you want to speak about the the boy, the man, the ballpark, the how you became a Cubs fan. And well, I had no choice, really, of being a Cubs fan. I grew up on the west side of Chicago. Everybody in the neighborhood was a Cubs fan. Uh, we were equidistant from Wrigley Field <coughs> and then Comiskey Park. But for some reason, on the, west, on the west side, it was Cubs fans. And I've wondered about that over the years. And uh, I began following baseball in 1948. I was eight years old. And the Cubs had been in the World Series in 1945, which I did not remember. They were contenders in 46 and almost maybe even 47. But by 1948, they were a last place team and what we used to call the second division, the uh, there were eight teams in, in, in the league, and the first four teams that made it to the end of the season were in the first division, and this, the next four teams were second division, and the Cubs at that point established a record of, uh, of, of being uh, in the second division 20 consecutive years. 
So in other words, from the time I was 8 to, to 28, I was always following a team that was always losing. Uh, as uh, Jack Brickhouse once said, uh, when the Cubs hadn't won a World Series, I can't wait, but I'll, I'll, I want to go back. Uh, so uh, 1940, I'm starting to follow. And the White Sox had not been a good team. And, of course, there was still the stench of the 1919 Black Sox. Uh, and so, but if you were a diehard uh, Southsider in Chicago, you were, uh, remained a, a White Sox fan. But we didn't have to be a White Sox fan on the, on the west side of Chicago. And so... Um, uh, everybody was pretty much a Cubs fan. Um, we knew the one White Sox fan in the neighborhood, <laughs> and he did, and he did not come out during the day, <laughs> so <laughs> because his house was patrolled. <laughs> um, and then the Cubs just started losing. But I mean, there was always there was uh, you know now there was always it really failed his capacity almost every game. A little less so now, but. But for years, the last, you know, 15, 20, 25 years, it was a thing of going to Wrigley Field. And, but before that, in, in the 50s, um, when I was going to games, uh, into in the 60s, the um, place was half-filled, maybe. Um, and, which was a good thing because uh, on the west side of Chicago, we, were, we weren't quite street urchins. But we were close. <laughs> and so, and I was younger and a little bit bigger, and, uh, and I hung out and played with guys who were older, as much as three and four years older than me. Uh, and they had already experienced being able to go to the ballparks and sneak in. So we would sneak in to the games. Uh, it was funny. It just, I'll jump. I, I, I would sneak into the, the, the games, and um, uh, we'd go through sometimes the vendor's entrance. We'd go early. Uh, sometimes we'd climb over a fence. Sometimes um, the buses would come with school kids uh, from various kinds of schools, sometimes even physically handicapped, and somehow we would get in, into the line and, and go through the turnstiles and get in. And, uh, and then once we were in, uh, we would sneak down into the box seats, and uh, you were always prepared for the, the ushers to come and grab you and, and take you out. And... Um, you know, you can't sit here and get out. And then we'd move, if this was in left field, the left field box seats, and we moved to the right field box seats and move around that way. That's how we saw the games. <laughs> and uh, when I became a, a sports writer, as I start off the, the uh, my essay, uh, now I'm a, I'm a credentialed sports writer, and I'm, I'm on the field, I'm standing behind the batting cage. And I kept waiting for an usher to come to grab me. You know. I felt like an imposter, you know. Um, but uh, that wasn't the case. And, um, uh, and the, one of the more memorable times of sneaking into the, the ballpark was they had the beer truck come in the morning, and then they had a, a chute go into the, into the basement of the ballpark. So then they would stack the, the cases of beer to be sold at the game. And they had ice on the chute. So one of my friends jumped on the chute, and he slid down into the ballpark. And I didn't quite, he was a little older, and I didn't quite see how he did it. Because he did it on his heels. I did it on my butt. For the rest of the game, I had a wet butt. <laughs> so if you want to sneak into a game, if there's a beer chute, do it on your heels. Um... Then, um, 
uh, I've written this before, and um, but I for some I decided not to write it in the introduction about experiences of uh, I talk about sneaking in, but there was one particular moment, and uh, I was twelve, and my friend was fourteen was with, me. and we went early, and we went down, and we sat in the dugout as the Cubs were taking batting practice before anybody was in the ballpark. Uh, any uh, spectators audience. And so my friend and I were sitting in the dugout. Cubs were taking batting practice. 1952. <coughs> and it, it, uh, the ball players just looked over and probably thought we were the nephews of Phil Wrigley or something. I mean, who, why are these two guys in the dugout? You know, what are, you know obviously they, they had a reason for being there. They were allowed to be here. So whatever, we're sitting in the dugout. And then the great player of 1952 was Hank Sauer, the left fielder. Great Hank Sauer. He was MVP that year. Uh, he was MVP, I think, in the All-Star game. He had a home run in the All-Star game. Led the league, or, or tied for the home run league. Led every RBIs on a fifth, fifth place team, or sixth place team, or seventh place team, or eighth place team. I don't remember. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, we were sitting there, and Hank Sauer came in from left field from shagging flies, and he was going to take batting practice. And I wrote this story when, well, I, I won't get ahead of us. So he came in and threw his glove on the dugout bench right by me, almost hit me with it, threw it there, and went up to bed. So, as I said, we were semi-street urchins. So I took the, the glove, I said, wow, Hank Sauer's glove, it was a Ted Williams model, and it flapped over, I guess the outfielder's gloves flap over like this, as opposed to an infielder's glove, which comes down sort of like this. But anyway, I just I just noticed it, and it was just, wow, Hank Sauer's glove is fantastic here it is. And my friend said, look, let me take a look at it. I said, yeah. He said, here it is. He took it, put it under his sweater, and started running out. <laughs> I said, where are you going? That's Hank Sauer's glove. <laughs> let's get out of here. So we start running out. And, oh, my God. And I said, well, let's stay for the game. He said, are you crazy? I have Hank Sauer's glove. I'm going to stay for the game. <laughs> so we ran to the elevator train, which is about a block and a half a block away from Wrigley Field. You're from Chicago. You're nodding. No, oh, no, you're, no, you're, I've been there. oh, you've been there because you're nodding. Yeah. Uh, and, and so um, we get we get on the uh, the elevated train, and my friend was apparently experienced in some of these things because he kept getting off this train, waiting for another train. Because he's, I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "Maybe somebody's following us." So it took about six or seven elevated trains to, to get to our stop, uh, and. And then the subway. Okay. So now, uh, that winter, I'm reading a sport magazine, uh, uh, <coughs> sport magazine, a sport magazine, and there's a, a profile of Hank, of Hank Sauer. And then somewhere in the article it says, uh, uh, Sauer now is very careful with his baseball glove <laughs> because uh, in the summer, in July, whatever his his glove disappeared. He had thrown it on the dugout, and his glove disappeared. I was racked with guilt. Total guilt. I mean, I was reading in bed, and I just lurched up like this. Oh, my God, this is awful. And so 
for the next 37 years, I was thinking that one day, uh, when I became a, a, a professional uh, sports writer, sports columnist, I like going to Florida for spring training because I like the ocean and I like the, the Gulf. This is how hard I was working as a <laughs> But I like that as opposed to the desert and, and, and Arizona. <coughs> but he w- had gone with the Giants and now he was sometimes a manager, a coach, uh, and, and a scout for the Giants. And uh, But I thought one day, if I was covering games in Arizona, I would run into him. But I, I was in Florida, I didn't run into him. But I thought somehow or other I'd run into him. So now we're at the World Series of uh, 1989, and it's and we're in the stands before the game, before Game Three, and there's an earthquake. Game Three is an earthquake. Everybody starts leaving the ballpark, and as I'm leaving, and I'm, and then I'm going to go down a ramp, and then coming down the aisle toward the ramp is the unmistakable face. <laughs> of Hank Sauer. He had that craggy longshoreman's look. You know, he hadn't changed. and He looked like he was seven years old when he was 30. <laughs> and uh, a lying face, but a, a sweet, sweet kind of face. And he was with a woman who apparently was his wife and then two younger people, maybe a son or his daughter or his son-in-law and his daughter-in-law. So I was leaving with the ballpark with Tom Callahan, who was then the uh, sports editor of Time Magazine. Tom and I are friends. And I said, Tom, there's a guy, he's coming this way. It's the middle of the earthquake. Everyone's leaving the ballpark. I said, Tom, I I, want to say something personally to this guy. You have to talk to the the people he's with. (laughs) What am I going to say to these people? Who are they? (laughs) I said, it doesn't matter. Talk to them. (laughs) So I went over, I said, excuse me. Um, you're Hank Sauer. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it was like I wanted his autograph in the middle of the earthquake. <laughs> so I said, I said, uh, I said, I'm Ira Burko. I'm a sports columnist for the New York Times. And I have something personal I want to say. <laughs> he said, well, uh, okay. You know, we walked over. And I guess he was checking to see if I was packing or something. You know, he didn't know what, what, what to make of this. And we walk over. And I said, Kelly, I'm to talk to these people. So, uh, so I go over. I say, um, I say, uh, Hank, uh, you may remember um, in 1952. Uh, 1952 was my MVP year. I, you know, I, I know it was your MVP year. <laughs> I said, I said, uh, Hank, if you recall, your glove disappeared. <laughs> he said, Yeah, my glove disappeared. I said, Well, I want to tell you that I was sitting on the bench. You threw the glove on the bench. He went up to hit the And a friend of mine, and I can't give up his name, I won't give up his name, he took the, the glove, took it under his sweater, and he ran out. And that's what happened to the glove. And Hank Sauer looked at me and he had these great big hands. He put his hands on my throat. <laughs> he said, You stole my glove. I said, No, Hank, I didn't steal your glove. My friend did not get me with his hands. He took his hands away and he said, I'm glad you got it off your chest. <laughs> he was a great guy. He was a great guy. So now, I don't know, 10 years later, something like that, Hank Sauer, I learned that uh, he was playing golf, he teed off, and he got a heart attack on the first tee and he died. And so I wrote this story 
for the times. I revealed myself for the first time. But I didn't mention my friend's name. My friend was doing very well in like the Mercantile Exchange in Chicago. One, one of these exchanges, that there, there's like three or four, and he made huge amounts of money. He, he didn't rob anything, as far as I know, but he made huge amounts of money. And he was with all these different people, and they're hollering about the cattle or whatever they do on that, these things. <laughs> anyway, he told these people that his, his, his good friend of his is a sports columnist with the New York Times and showed him the article. <coughs> and so the article appeared. I told him it was coming. And he called me up the next day, and he was really mad. I said, what are you mad about? He said, you didn't use my name. <laughs> I said, you're a thief. Why would I use your name? <laughs> he, was, he was mad. Anyway, he played. He actually played with the glove until... Uh, the, everything came apart, and you know, I mean, until the glove wore, totally wore out. But um, anyway, I I've written that in some other places, including the like, Times column, Sports and Times. But I just didn't put it in into the book. Uh, I had other stuff to do, and I just it's, it might take too long, and we have other things to deal with in the book. So, but I'm telling you people the story. <laughs> yeah. Where's the glove now? The, he just he wore it out, and uh, they just it fell apart, and uh, the stuffing, <laughs> stuffing came out, and but he played with it all. I mean, he used it, you know. So I, Hank might have been happy that he actually used it, you know, but I don't think he would have been happy with it. <laughs> well, uh, just some, something I've never asked you, uh, but it just dawned on me as you were telling this. So you're a young boy in the dugout and moving around seats and. I'm sure at that time you wanted you wanted to be a Cubs, a Cub player. But when, when did you know you wanted to be a sports writer? Well, I didn't know I wanted to be a sports writer until I was a junior in college. I thought I was. Um, I'll just go back very briefly. Um, there was a period of time I played high school baseball and uh, uh, and, and basketball, and and I thought at one point I, I might have a career, but um, at at some point early on, I even though I played and was decent, I realized that. Uh, that this wasn't for me, that there were, I mean, I, I played against other guys who were just so, so much better. Uh, I mean, I was decent. They were terrific. You know, that, that there's a, a huge gulf, a gulf. Uh, and, um, uh, and then I, um, I had no, going in the city of Chicago, and I mean, nobody in my neighborhood had uh, any really formal education or college or anything. But then I, um, uh, I thought maybe I'd be an accountant. Uh, then I went to college, I went to an accounting course, and I, I stopped going after the first day. I mean, this wasn't for me. And I thought I'd be a lawyer because uh, I admired Clarence Darrow, who was a Chicago lawyer for the defense. And, and then in college, um, I went to, uh, went to Miami, Ohio. Uh, and um, first I went to Roosevelt University, where I played on the, on the team there. And the highlight of my basketball career was... 17 points against the DePaul freshman team. And at that time, they had freshmen and, and they had some very good, good players. And so it was, that was a good moment for me. Uh, but I still realized playing against these guys that, uh, I mean, one guy I, I started guarding, and he started the next year for DePaul, and he came down, I was guarding, and he gave me a shoulder fake. And I, I almost flew into the stands, you know. And I, uh, and I, I didn't go for that fake anymore, but I went for his other fakes. You know. But uh, it was a big difference. Uh, in, um, in, in, uh, there's called levels of the game. There's called levels of the game, but there's also levels of the game in writing. And uh, I went to Miami, Ohio, and I was in 
uh, grad, uh, I was in a dormitory, and the guy lived across the dormitory for me, Dave Bergen, was an assistant sports editor at the school paper, and I played sports, and I, knew, I followed sports, uh, and he said, come right on the school paper. And I never dreamed of doing anything like this. I, went, I uh, wrote a, a piece, and uh, people started talking about it, and sh- shortly after he became sports editor, he gave me a sports column, he said, write anything you want, do anything you want in a sports column. And incredibly, I started writing a column, and, and then uh, in Miami University, is a pretty good school, and and they started. They were talking about my columns in the English classes, and so I thought, "Wow, uh, I may not be a guard for the Knicks, <laughs> but I, I may have a career as a writer." <laughs> and it turned out that I did. So, well, as you can tell, I was uh, an amazing and a beautiful storyteller. So rather than uh, just having me ask some questions, I, I'd like to open it up to you if there's any questions you'd like to ask Ira. But I promise our youngest, we have a wide range of ages here tonight. I'm not going to ask who's the oldest, but I know you're the youngest. How, how old are you? 14. 14. Jacob uh, is uh, a semi-regular and probably a future uh, Hall of Fame sports writer or broadcaster. So do you have a question you want to lead us off with? Yeah, I wanted to ask the in recent years, the Cubs have made an attempt to make Wrigley Field more 21st century friendly, um, adding new LED scoreboards and stuff like that. Um, I just wanted to know if you were um, opposed to that, if you uh, like, would like the Cubs to keep the old Wrigley Field the ballpark. Yeah, um, well, uh, they still have the same old scoreboard. Right. You know, this right. hand-driven scoreboard. Um, but they want to do some other things, and they want to block off the uh, the bleachers of the, the guys in the roof of those apartments across the street. And uh, uh, and I was, um, and I just thought that it would take away from the integrity of it. And, and I was also opposed to lights. But uh, and I covered the first night game. It was and the date was eight eight eighty eight August eighth nineteen eighty eight, and it rained it rained out after three three innings by the next night. But um, uh, that they put the lights and the, they did a really nice job with the lights on, on the roof. It was pretty elegant, uh, I thought. And so um, I just hope they don't they don't ruin the thing. But I, there's something else, and I end the my introduction with one of the most important things that ever happened to me. And it might be of interest to you, but I was like 11 years old and getting autographs after games, uh, and one of the Cup coaches named Hard Rock Johnson, Roy Hard Rock Johnson. He was called Hard Rock. He had an uh, exterior was kind of a Hard Rock, but he, but he was he was beloved by the, the players and so forth. And as a pitcher, he gave up gave up a home run to Babe Ruth. That was the highlight of his pitching career in the major leagues. <laughs> but anyway, he would hit fungos, you know, the fungos to the outfielders and before games. And uh, but uh, so after a game, we're getting autographs, and he was hurrying, and I said. I said, Mr. Johnson, can I have your autograph? And he said, uh, uh, no. He said, uh, come tomorrow, I'll give you a ball. Or something like this. Something, I'll give you a ball. He gets into a car, drives off, and closes the door. I almost got my finger stuck in the door. <laughs> so the next day I go, and I go down before the game, and I go, and we're hitting the fungos. And I start calling Mr. Johnson. Uh, I saw yesterday you promised me a ball. And there are other people now around. This is already people who are in the stands. And he's hitting the ball, you know, to the outfield. Throw the ball up, hit it. And I, Mr. Johnson, he's not giving me a time of day. 
and then uh, other people are tittering and laughing, you know. And, and then the usher comes and says, you're going to have to get out of here. He's disturbing me. And I said, look, he promised me a ball. And this is how naive and, and ignorant I was. I said, he promised me a ball, you know. <laughs> I said, Mr. Johnson, he promised me a ball. And just as the usher was going to drag me by the scuff of my neck, he turned, Roy Johnson turned around and tossed me a ball. And I caught the ball. Now, what happened to the ball isn't important, as important as the lesson I learned that anything is possible. <laughs> that anything is possible, but you just have to keep working at it. You know, I mean, that was the lesson for me when I was, I, and, uh, but um, because I believed in him. You know, I believed <laughs> in him. Uh, and, and, and it may have changed my life if he, if he never gave me the ball. I don't know, you know, what, 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 what difference that would have made. But he, he tossed me the ball. It was, it was a scruffy kind of ball. And so someone in the neighborhood said, put, it, you put the ball in milk and it'll get, you get the, 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 the smudges out. So I, what do I know? I'm 11 years old. Someone says, an adult says to me, put the ball in milk. So I put, I put the ball in milk. And of course, it comes out soggy and stupid. <laughs> Couldn't play. Oh, and then and then I told and then I, afterward I, I told Johnson I saw him, and I said I put the ball in milk. And he said you didn't play with it. He wanted me to play with it. That's what I was thinking. That Hank Sauer would have been maybe said okay, the guy played with the glove, you know. And and I remember Roy Johnson saying to me, you didn't play with it, you know. He didn't give me another ball. <laughs> he, he said uh, maybe. He, he, maybe if I said I was all out of milk, he would have given me another ball. I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, I'll just keep talking for one, one moment here. When I was in college and writing on the school paper, and in Chicago, I had read Red Smith. Red Smith was the greatest. Acknowledged the greatest sports writer we've ever had, and I started reading him in the Chicago Sun Times because they always ran his column next to the, the high school uh, basketball box scores. So the only thing I would read in those days was the box scores. <laughs> and then, but somehow one day my, my gaze drifted over to his column. And I just, even, even in, my, in my naive, ignorant, uh, lower quarter of high school graduating class days, uh, I sort of discovered Red Smith. And then when I went away to college in Miami of Ohio, I transferred from Roosevelt, Miami of Ohio, uh, Red was syndicated. He was out of the New York Herald Tribune. He was syndicated, most syndicated sports columns in the country. And so he was syndicated uh, in uh, Oxford, Ohio, is where Miami University is. And it was equidistant from Dayton and Cincinnati. And he was, and they covered it. They carried him both in the, in the Cincinnati and Dayton papers. So I continued reading Red Smith. And when I started writing, I thought, you know something? I'd like to be able, I'd like to be that good. You know, uh, that's not necessarily right the way Red Smith does, but this, to move you, to make you laugh out loud, uh, to, to read a column and, and bring you to tears, uh, to, to make a, a point that is um, of a case, you know, that uh, like a legal case except <coughs> readable, you know, and, and uh, uh, yeah, to the barricades with this guy. He was just great. So I sent him uh, two of my columns. I this was sort of the Hard Rock Johnson thing. I, I mean, I didn't know him, and he didn't promise me anything, but I thought, why not? You know, the great Red Smith, maybe he'd give me a pointer or two. And so um, uh, 
he wrote back. He said, Dear Ira Burko, when I was a cub reporter in Milwaukee and I was writing a lead in the office and the, the managing editor would come by and look over my shoulder. If he liked what he saw, he'd nod and walk away. If he didn't, he'd say, try again. My advice to you is try again. <laughs> and again, if you're for this business, and not many really are, they'll have an eternity of sweat and tears ahead. Not just you, but anyone. He said, but um, my first impulse was to paste up your two uh, stories and write in marginal criticisms. But they wouldn't have made you happy. He said, but here's a couple other points. Uh, keep trying. God bless. So I got those two columns. I pasted them up uh, on paper, folded them up, and I said, Dear Mr. Smith, please make me unhappy. And we developed a correspondence, and he edited my stuff. And uh, sometimes I would write uh, some of my co- a couple columns in the summertime for because I would write stories for the most part. I didn't cover games necessarily, so I covered I would write stories essentially <coughs> about growing up in Chicago, about sneaking into games or whatever it was. Uh, and um, uh, and he um, so we we had this correspondence uh, all these years. And um, um, and he uh, and he made me happy actually because uh, uh, oh and I was going to say that when he would edit my stuff but I would write out and type it out rather than sending it that was already in the paper with and he would go over it um, <laughs> but this before it got in the paper and I have to tell you that when those two, those pieces appeared in, in the Miami student newspaper they were the best edited pieces <laughs> anyone has ever seen <laughs> you know. And maybe that's what um, influenced some of the English professors that talk about this stuff. So, um, and then, um, and then um, we had a correspondence. Then when I, I went to the Minneapolis Tribune, I did one book review. I sent it to him, and he had some comments. And then we, that was the end of. And you know, now I'm a professional. I wasn't about to start sending him stuff anymore. And uh, but we had a relationship. And um, and then. Um, uh, January 15th, 1982, I was home. I was, I was with the New York Times. We overlapped about eight months, uh, eight, nine months at the New York Times. And uh, the uh, I was writing a column. Sometimes he would be sick, Red, and uh, I would substitute for him at the New York Times. And uh, uh, then I got a call January 15th in the afternoon from the sports editor, Joe Vecchio, and he said, I already got some bad news. I said, what's that? He said, Red died. I said, oh, my God. And he said, we want you to write the obituary. So um, he said, we want you to come in the office because all around the country, uh, he was on the network news and the death, and people are writing in stuff. And I said, well, I I know the story. I can can write it from home. So we want you to come there. So I went in, and I wrote it. And among other things, I said he was generous to college, young college writers. And I quoted one the, what that the first, you know, a try again and so forth. And I didn't say who he wrote it to, you know. Um, and it was, um, I wrote it long. And I got up the next morning, went to my doorstep, picked up the New York Times, front page, obituary, my first front page, please. And 
I had such mixed feelings, but I was glad for the family that it was front page, that it was good enough to be front page, and um, and maybe I honor, honored him in some way. Did you hear about Tom Dixon? Who? Tom Dixon. Tom Dixon. Tom Dixon. Tom Dixon. Tom Dixon. Awesome. Arthur David. Yeah, I knew Arthur David. Yeah. What about Smith's column? Oh, oh. Um, um, we all had, at the New York Times, we all had to do some advanced obituaries. Um, there was an advanced obituary of Red Smith, and they didn't like it, and so that's why they asked me to, to do an original. Um, but uh, Red Smith. Uh, wrote an obituary, an advanced obituary on the great heavyweight boxing champion Jeff Dempsey. Um, when you see someone, uh, 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 Benjamin Netanyahu dies uh, at five o'clock. At, t- at ten o'clock, of the first editions of the paper, there's a gigantic obituary on, on Netanyahu with a top saying he died yesterday, blah blah. But then this whole background. So all this is already in type at newspapers for prominent people, and so. I was assigned to do uh, some obituaries, as was Red, and he did the obituary on Jack Dempsey, uh, the great heavyweight champion of the 20s. So it turned out uh, that Red died before Jack Dempsey did. But when Jack Dempsey died, there was a headline, Jack Dempsey, world boxing champion, dies at age 85 by... Red Smith. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, well, he wrote it, but uh, he wasn't around anymore. But the next day, Joe Vecchio, who was a sports editor, very funny guy, great guy. So a bunch of the writers were around. He had the, the obituary newspaper in his hand. He said, You see, Red writes better dead than you. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> I have a question back there, Marcy. Yeah, of course it has nothing to do with baseball. Okay, so I'm really interested in this obituary stuff. In the what? I'm really interested in the obituary process. So I imagine you're <coughs> reporting. So when you do a reporting on an obituary, do you tell the people you're calling? Well, that's, that, 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 that's, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, uh, I remember I did it one on Lou Boudreau. Who was Lou Boudreau? He was a Hall of Fame shortstop for the Cleveland Indians player manager, and he made the Hall of Fame. So I was assigned to do Lou Boudreau, who's still alive. And he was living in a town called Frankfort, Illinois, F-O-R-T, Frankfort, Illinois. So, geez, I'm going to call him up. Uh, I said, I call him, and I said, uh, I said, Mr. Boudreau, I'm Ira Burko, writer for the New York Times, and as you may know, uh, they do advance obituaries on prominent people. Uh, you are a, a Hall of Fame baseball player, and when we hope you live forever, but the odds are, the odds are you won't. And so there's going to be a, a major obituary on you in the New York Times when you die. And I'm calling two reasons. One is I'm going to write the, obitu- the advance obituary, and I'm calling you to get the facts right. He said, I have no problem. Ask me whatever you want to ask me. And one of and so I did. And one of the things I asked him is, I understand 
I had heard that your mother was Jewish. Uh, but we know of two, two Jewish baseball players in the Hall of Fame, Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg. Well, there's actually a third. And Lou Boudreau said, yes, uh, my, uh, uh, my, uh, my mother was Jewish. And I remember going to Seder's at, my, at her parents' house. And then, as I recall, his parents split up when he was about 9 or 10. He went with his father, and he, and he grew up as a Catholic. He was raised as a Catholic. Um, and uh, uh, so he said yes. And so whatever, the, you know, so there's a lot of Jewish readers for the New York Times. For whatever the reasons are, the, the editor took out the fact that he was Jewish. So... Um, there was a guy named uh, Marty Abramowitz who does baseball, the Jewish baseball cards. Uh, you know, these Jewish baseball cards. Of all the Jewish baseball cards. So he sent me the first, to turn there was a couple of editions later, but he sent me the original. And I ran into him and I said, uh, you're missing somebody. He said, who is that? I said, uh, Lou Boudreau. He said, oh, I said, Lou Boudreau denied that he was Jewish. I said, no, he didn't. I said, and he told it to me at the New York Times that he explained that. And he said, the next edition, I'm going to have Lou Boudreau in, uh, in the Jewish baseball players. And he did. And as far as I'm concerned, that is my contribution to American <laughs> Jewish culture. <laughs> <laughs> what was the justification for the Times? Pardon me? I have no idea. Uh, it Maybe, uh, who knows? It, maybe it was just... The editor felt it was extraneous. There's no no point in saying that he was Jewish. Um, sometimes they do that. I just there's a, uh, some obvious people. Parents were born in Russia. They came here. They didn't mention that they're Jewish. Sometimes they do it. Sometimes they don't. I don't know. The but the worst thing that they did. I did an advanced obituary, or maybe it was it was an advanced obituary. It was on Shirley Povich, who was a great sports writer, a sports editor, a sports columnist for the Washington Post. And when he died, it wasn't an advance of this way because uh, when he died, I uh, called several people, including his daughter. I can't remember his daughter's first name. She worked at Newsweek. A lovely woman. And she told me a great story, which I put in the obituary. And the story was this. Uh, uh, Shirley would take his family to the spring training. Uh, I think the center's trained it, and they've been Winter Haven, Florida at the time. Later the Red Sox trained them, the Senators, I think. And he had two sons, one of them is Maury, one of them is Maury Povich, we all know, and, that, and another son I think is a lawyer. <coughs> and and the daughter, so they had three kids. So he comes to spring training and everybody loved Shirley, he was a great he was an iconic person in Washington. And so he had his boys go into the locker room uh, and be with the players in the locker room. The girl couldn't go into the locker room. But Shirley asked Mickey Vernon, who was the great Washington Center's first baseman, if he would come out and play catch with his daughter, which he did. And I wrote this. They took this out of the obituary. I never inquired why. It's done. Anyway, Marcy, those are some of my advanced obituary stories. Oh, you know, one other thing is I, I was taking some friends around, uh, showing them the paper one Saturday afternoon, 
and we went to where they're making up the front page. And they had this and this and this on the front page. And this was like about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and all this stuff. Shortly after, uh, Itzhak Rabin was, was, was murdered. And you got the paper the next morning. Big front page story. Itzhak Rabin and then the, then the jump, what we call the jump in the, inside the paper. But they changed that front page around immediately with all this stuff. So here we, we had seen what was the front page going to be, and it turned out to be not the front page. And that's, that's, that's how these, the, the papers work uh, so, so swiftly. Yes? Don't you think that the New York Times omits that most people that are famous write their own offense? They are, I'm sorry, most people that are famous write their own Most people that are famous write their own Oh, no, 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 no. So who's written yours? Huh? <laughs> who's written yours? In the New York Times? No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. I was there for 26 years. How many years were you at the Times? What? I was at the Times for 26 years. I was at. The, I worked at the Times for twenty six years. How many years? How many years did you work at the Times? I didn't work for them. But, 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 but I'm reading, and I cannot believe that someone else is. is well, all I can tell you is believe, <coughs> because they don't write the obituaries. How many people do you think knew that Shirley Bowditch was a male writer? Um. Everybody in Washington did. Uh, he was. Huh. He was from Maine, and in Maine, uh, uh, Shirley was a, a fairly common male name. Why I don't know, but it was. And um, so, but anyway. People that want to have a daughter. The what? The people that named their sons Shirley wanted to have a girl. Well, I don't think that was the case in this case. Well, I have a from an eighty-five-year-old that I know about Shirley. You know? Did you know Shirley? What? Did you know Shirley? Did you know him? I don't know Shirley. Well, I was I was very good friends with Shirley. I know. I spent I spent many years with uh, traveling with Shirley. He was confident. Huh? <coughs> he said he said it was a common male name in uh, in, in Maine. You know. Uh, so, uh, yes. Besides, um, Fred, were there were there other writers that you admire? Oh my God! Yeah, um, I mean, but not not necessarily sports writers, uh, but but writers: E.D. White, Virginia Woolf, Kafka. Um, uh, oh, Kafka! Yeah, I mean, um, uh, as far as writing in simple sense, but E.B. White, um, uh, loads. Uh, there's one you may not know: Isaac Babel, B.A.B.E.L., Russian writer. Oh God, he's fantastic. Um, short stories and. Um, uh, but you know, I would read these people. Uh, 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 George Plimpton could make you laugh out loud. Could make you laugh out loud. And I, I would study these guys and say, how did they do it? How did they make me laugh? How did they make me cry? What? How did they build this up? What did they do here? I, I would, I, I, long, long hours studying this stuff, uh, and just seeing how they did it. You know. Um, did you write to them too? Um. I wrote to E.B. White because um, I, I, I used something of E.B. White. I, I, I did something. I did a book with Walt Frazier called Rock and Steady, and I patterned it, patterned it after E.B. White's uh, and Strunk, uh, The Elements of Style. I was just going to ask if you're And so I used the way he did 
put together elements of style, put together rock and steady this way. That, that's actually a good question because I have a friend who works at the Times and she tells me that the Times uses a different elements of style than the strong and white. Not, uh, not, 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 no. Well, well I mean, uh, the elements of style really is a, is a writing guy, you know, I mean, uh, uh, and maybe there, there may be something. I didn't find too many differences as, as far as the actual style is concerned. But he was talking about writing and, 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 and how uh, how to make a point and, 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 um, uh, and the beauty of, of uh, he, he gives an example of you know, be specific and he gives an example of Robert Louis Stevenson writing about a cow and it was a fairly famous poem by Robert Louis Stevenson and he said um, uh, you know uh, people generally you can write generally about a column but, but Robert Louis Stevenson zeroed in on this one particular cow which will live forever in our, in our minds. And he was being specific about something. And, um, you know, it's always so much better to be specific than general. Um, but uh, if, you, if you go to the, uh, the style section of, uh, of, of, of the E.B. White, uh, the elements of style, um, uh, 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 be, um, be positive as opposed to negative, as opposed to saying, um, I will never go there again you might say, um, put it in the positive way. <laughs> Take out the negative. And uh, I can't give you an example right now. I, I, I should, but, but E.B. White does. And um, uh, so, uh, but there's, there, 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 there will not be vast differences by any means between the time styles. Um, I mean, they, they, they may capitalize some things that E.B. White wouldn't capitalize necessarily. Um, uh, or, I don't know, S apostrophe S or S apostrophe, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's minimal, yes. What, in your, in your opinion, what's the best thing about Wrigley and what's the <coughs> most frustrating or worst part of it, whether it's history or going to a game there? Well, the best thing about Wrigley Field, of course, is the atmosphere. Is I, You know, I mean, the ivy, the red brick, um, the bleachers are enclosed, the, the symmetri- uh, symmetrical, um, uh, and um, you know it's in a neighborhood, and it's just a whole ambiance is so unusual. And um, and the, the worst thing is for 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 the sports writer anyway. Uh, for a lot of time I was covering it, they they did not have have an elevator going up to the press box, so you have to start walking up the elevator. One guy actually, Ritter Collette of the Dayton Daily News, had a, got a heart attack uh, walking up the ramps. But uh, but once you get up there. Uh, you don't want to go back down after the game, <laughs> you know, to interview people in the locker room. So, but that's—I mean, the, the, it's peerless. The uh, the atmosphere, the ambiance. Uh, there's 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 nothing like it anywhere. You know, people compare uh, 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 Fenway Park. Fenway Park is quirky. You know, it's it, it it has its own charm, of course, but it's quirky. Wrigley Field is gorgeous, and and um, I don't know if any of you are from. For a second. I don't know if any of you are from Chicago, but there's an iconic building in Chicago where they slanted roof, uh, roof, say roof, <laughs> roof. Uh, and uh, and the architect is my cousin Sheldon Schlick. And cousin Sheldon, I asked him to give me his view of Wrigley Field. And here's a paragraph of a great. Um, of a great architect, my, my, my dear cousin Sheldon. Um, what I've always loved about Wrigley Field 
said the noted Chicago architect Shelton Schleicher, <laughs> is its intimacy. Anywhere you sit in the park, the bleachers, the grandstand, anywhere, you feel you're close to the field, which adheres to when it was built, when ballparks were constructed on a small scale. And it's nestled in a real neighborhood, in the middle of small homes and apartment buildings, not in some suburb with a sea of parking around it. It has retained its century-old charm. It's a magical place. <coughs> Sheldon, that's poetic. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Have you been to every baseball? Uh, no, no, I've been, no. Um, it's a dream. Some people, like, you know, make their life... Yeah. You know, well, we should talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. These, are, these, these, these are sick people you're describing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Present company excluded. Present company excluded. Sorry about that. I'm, yeah. I'm a lunatic. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Randy. Uh, yeah, no, there's one story that I just have to share. When I was Randy Myers was a close friend when he was with the Cubs on the visit. sitting behind in the second seat next to the dugout by the bag circle. And they have that brick wall there, and I don't know how many of you know, but the children, when they come into the ballpark, are given some crayons and a little coloring book so that they can just relax, you know, while everyone's watching the game. And this little girl is standing there, and she's leaning her coloring book on the brick wall right by the batting circle, and she's coloring, and Moises Alou is in the batting circle. And he's looking back, and he's checking it out. So I went to him, I said, Moises, go color with him. And he comes over and he takes the crayons and the two of them are coloring. And I was like, if there's, this is before cell phone. I was like, we're going to call Sharon. Yeah. This is captured this. This is this is this tells you exactly the problem with the Cubs: lack of <laughs> lack of focus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. can, you imagine, can you imagine Pete Rose doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back, back there. So, all right. I will admit, so I am the crazy person that all 30 parks last summer. And, you know, Rigby, I love Rigby. I grew up in Calvin, Michigan, so I grew up going to Rigby when I was a kid. But I think... Well, you went to Tiger Stadium. I, I grew up basically spending my time between Tiger Stadium and Wrigley, basically, every other weekend I was at yeah. one or the other. And... The thing that kind of frustrates me about modern day really is when I was a kid, you could kind of go wherever you want. You go to the bleachers if you want. You go and you got to explore. And on top of that, it feels like to me that the majority of people that are in the same these days are going for the atmosphere that they've heard so much about, and that in and of itself inherently changes the, the naturalistic atmosphere that exists. Well, yeah, but it's it's rough to go to the watch a major league thing. <laughs> That's true. I mean. He, 50% of the teams playing on the field are, are major league games. <laughs> uh, major league players. There's 50% of major league players on the field. So, uh, but, so my, my question, though, yeah. was uh, twofold. One, what do you think about their, their talking about moving the bullpens uh, off the field? And uh, yeah. that's something that I'm out of view. Yeah, yeah I'd hate to do that because, I mean, there were times when I would get autographs because they were exactly. right along the side over yeah, there, you know. And, of course, even even before Moises and Lou, the, the focus was not there whatsoever. <laughs> so these guys are signing autographs, no problem, you know. Uh, oh, uh, they want you to come in the pitch. <laughs> I haven't warmed up yet. I've been, I've been, I've been autographing and drawing pictures. Uh, Okay. And also, sorry, but just today they announced that WGN Radio. Is I saw that. Uh, yeah. That broke my heart. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, uh, the, the the best line of all 
and WGN with Jack Brickhouse. Yeah. Uh, he used to. He was the announcer for years, going back to '48 when I was. They used to have three stations doing Cub games in, in '48 when I when I was growing up. And um, but um, you know, the Cubs hadn't won a World Series since 1908. Yeah. And it was Jack Brickhouse who said who, who was defensive about, about this and said anybody could have a bad century. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was before me. Oh. That was before me, and also he, he never was at the ballpark. Right. He would he would get it, the, yeah, and um, uh, yeah. I uh, it's funny you brought up. Uh, I was going to ask you about the tradition in Wrigley. If you know, you can tell a little about how it started when uh, guys sing to me out to the ball game in the crowd. That was Harry Carey. Yeah, Harry Carey. That was Harry Carey, and it was it was one of the great moments in sports. Seventh inning. Of course, over here at Yankee Stadium, they do uh, Kate Smith or something, uh, which. Uh, but he, uh, they did, um, they did uh, 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 Harry Carey leaning out, uh, sometimes sober, <laughs> leaning out of the broadcast booth with his microphone, and began in his croaking voice, "Take me out to the ball game," and then the the whole Wrigley Field. Generally, it was it was thirty forty thousand people. They all stood up, and they all looked toward, it was like looking toward Mecca. You know? And people were swaying. It was like being in a church. You know, people were swaying, or in a synagogue, davening, you know, they were praying. <laughs> they were moving back and forth. And, it was, and it, was, it was a great, it was one of the great moments in sports. Harry Carey with this thing, you know. And then they had uh, different um, celebrities uh, come and sing, but... It was never quite the same as, as, as Harry Carey. Can I just follow up on that? Have you yeah. been asked to do that? Probably? I haven't. I haven't. And once I saw Harry before the, uh, a game, and I said, Harry, it's my father's birthday. Would you mind mentioning it? September 10th, my dad's birthday. And so uh, after after the game, I he said he was going to do it. And I called up my father, and I said, Dad, did, uh, did you hear happy uh, Harry Carey wish you happy birthday? He said... He wished me happy birthday three times. I got calls from people. Each time I was in the bathroom. <laughs> he said, I never heard it. <laughs> okay. We're gonna, we'll get to you just in a second. Uh, because of uh, the podcast time, we're just going to have to say farewell to our podcast audience, but then we'll pick back up. So to those listening, again, the book, Wrigley Field, published by Stuart Tabori and Chang by Ira Burko. Uh, if you're listening, we'll have we will probably have some extra autograph copies of the book. Feel free to contact me, and then I'll be glad to ship them out to you wherever you may be. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. Okay.